Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Coach's Corner with me, uh, your host, Rodrigo Plaza. Um, This episode is going to be hopefully one of a series in which I take questions from some of our wonderful coaches uh, working with our recreational teams here in Santa Cruz uh, City. Um, I wanted to create an opportunity for coaches to ask questions that they're having as they go through their season um, about really anything that they're experiencing, especially challenges, uh, working with young people, trying to teach the game, uh, trying to keep morale high, um, you know, and, and maybe their own personal experience as well, trying to enjoy their experience. Um, and so I think this is going to hopefully be a good educational experience for folks who are listening, but also for me. Um, to kind of uh, empathize and get closer with the work that you're doing uh, that's so, so important to our young people, um, especially uh, in these more uh, difficult times. Um, So I'm going to be going through a series of questions, and I want to maybe lay out a few things before I get started. Number one, I'm going to do my best to answer your question, uh, but obviously it would be easier if I was doing this with you in person, right, so I could get uh, feedback, follow-up questions, uh, and also make sure I understood the context of your question um, accurately. Uh, I obviously asked for some of that in the questionnaire that I sent out, um, and and the more that you can include there, the better, uh, just so that I can make sure I'm answering the the real question that you have. Um, The second thing that I want to mention is that Please feel free to follow up uh, after the episode. Send me an email, follow-up questions. I'd be happy to try to include those in future episodes, etc. Um, and lastly, I just want to emphasize that this is, at the end of the day, my perspective. Um, I am the rec coordinator for the Santa Cruz City Youth Soccer Club, um, but I want to be clear that you know this is my personal perspective on how we should be approaching or how we should approach coaching young people. Um, and you know, while I do feel that I have some good insights to share, you know, I am learning as well, um, and there may be opportunities for me to refine my ideas, to improve them, and even see some different sides of the coin. So. You know, take everything I say with a grain of salt, apply it to your situation in a way that makes sense, uh, and please, again, reach out with feedback, questions, comments, so that I can address them in future episodes. And with that, uh, we're going to get to the questions for today's episode. So there are five questions that came in today. Um, just for the sake of comfort, I'm going to try to keep, or I'm going to keep everybody's names anonymous, um, but I'm going to try to give as much context as I can about what team uh, we're talking about um, in terms of age group and gender. Uh, I'm also going to try to include any context that was provided so that we hopefully are all on the same page. So our first question uh, comes from the coach of a U10 boys team. And the question is, how do I keep my U10 boys players from clumping together around the ball and better stay in their positions? Um, It sounded like, based on the question that was submitted, that this was happening during games and scrimmages and practice. Uh, and the, what we've tried so far is demonstrating to the players, right, what they could do as an alternative, right? Rather than clump up, uh, let's spread out and go over here and look, you could pass the ball here, right? So that's some things we've tried. So the first thing I want to kind of just point out is that while we as adults, uh, you know, can watch soccer on TV, maybe we've played in the past, right? We have some soccer experience. Um, while we can recognize that clumping together in general, uh, is a challenging thing for a team when they're playing offense, right? It's not exactly a very successful way to uh, attack. It actually is an extremely important element of defense, right? When we defend, 
being clumped up is actually really valuable because it creates dense pockets of players that the other team then has to deal with, either by trying to penetrate, by going through, or going around, or going over. Um, and we need to kind of just keep in mind that we don't want to give our players this just blanket rule of spread out at all times. Because the reality is when we're on defense, we want to stay compact. We want to move as a group, and we want to try to win the ball back as a group. Uh, but when we're on offense, being spread out can be effective, right? And we can use it to better get down the field and to the goal. But just keep in mind that clumping is not inherently good or bad in the game of soccer, right? Now, of course, I think that what we're talking about in this scenario, right, is attacking, right? So you can imagine this little swarm of soccer players all running together, right? U10 boys, we're talking about eight, nine-year-olds, right? Swarming together, trying to move the ball up the field and probably getting into one of those kind of gridlock situations where the other team does the same and you're both just fighting and kicking the ball, trying to go forward, but ends in somewhat of a stalemate. I think that the first thing I want to mention to you or I want to mention uh, as, a, as, a, as a way to articulate this challenge to your players is not necessarily to emphasize passing. And the reason why is because in the beginning, young people don't really want to pass the ball. Not just because it's difficult on a technical level, but also because players don't like to share, right? Young people don't enjoy sharing. We teach them to share. We teach them the benefits of sharing. But sharing is, is not something that inherently they enjoy. They want the ball. They want to keep the ball. They want to go forward. And the fact that the other players are coming towards the ball is not even necessarily a bad thing either. It means that they're drawn to the ball. They want to get engaged. They want to get the ball. And that's a good thing. So instead of emphasizing the idea of passing the ball and cooperation right out of the gate, I would actually emphasize the difficulty that one would have dribbling if their own teammates are in the way. To say, look, when you have the ball and you want to go forward with it, is it easier or harder when your teammates are all around you, right? And let them have an open discussion about it. Some people might say, it's actually easier because if I lose the ball, then they'll get it, right? Take those things into account because they're not wrong. But also illustrate that challenging piece, which is if there are two or three people of my own team in front of me, it's going to make my ability to dribble more difficult, right? And we could all agree as a team that when one of our teammates has the ball, we want to get out of their way. We want to let them dribble the ball forward, right? Because we're all on a team and that's what we're trying to do right? That way it eases the burden for the player of having to jump from, I want the ball. I want to dribble forward. I want to be close to it. it. Instead of saying, oh, you don't necessarily want the ball. You want to pass it. We all want to work together. You just say, get out of his way, right? And if you get the ball, we should expect everyone else to get out of your way as well. Now that is kind of the short, I think. And if you, if you want to just go into applying some solution to this problem, you can start with that. But now to kind of dig a little bit deeper about what's going on with this age group, I kind of want to make a, a maybe a little bit broader point um, that's important to keep in mind, which is this. Technical ability precedes tactical awareness. What do I mean by that? Well, if you can imagine being a young player that is just learning to play the game of soccer, kicking the ball with direction and purpose is challenging in and of itself. Whether that's dribbling, passing, shooting, just the ability to execute the thing you want to do can be a challenge. And your ability to execute that is going to take precedence 
over any kind of tactical awareness. So in the situation we're talking about right now, this clumping of players, right, is in part going to occur because the players don't have a very strong technical foundation for how to pass and receive the ball, or maybe even dribbling. As they become better at these technical pieces, at dribbling and passing and receiving and turning, then they will have more space in their brain to think about the what we might call bigger picture. They might start to think more about passing the ball out wide or passing to the space. But you telling them, hey, pass to the space, hey, everybody spread out, you're trying to give them a tactical idea to carry out that honestly, they may not have the brain capacity to indulge you or to indulge right now because they are struggling to kick the ball where they want to, to make their bodies do the things that they are envisioning. And so we have to be patient in that way, right? We have to be patient because we can just safely assume that as their technical ability, technical ability improves, they will have more room to reflect and learn about tactical things like spreading out and passing to space and moving down the field. Things that might be very obvious to us as adults, but honestly, maybe kind of the last thing on their mind given the challenge they're having as a young player. Now, let's talk about the next piece, which is, okay, if this is all true, what can I do in practice, right? And then we'll talk about games. But what can I do in practice to kind of help facilitate this growth? right? Both on the tactical, but as we can see is important, the precursor stage of the technical, right? There are a few things. The first thing that you can do is you can play games and practice with smaller numbers of players, right? So playing something like 2v2 or even 2v1 is a really useful kind of setting for them to learn about spreading out. Why? Because when you have a 2v1, it's much easier easier to execute a pass to your partner that could effectively turn into a scoring opportunity. In a 4v4 or a 5v5 or a 6v6 even, passing the ball is going to be a lot more difficult to execute successfully. And if players are attempting to pass the ball but are constantly failing because it's intercepted, they don't pass the ball with enough strength, they're not accurate enough, that's going to discourage them right? And no matter how much reasoning you might do with them, their emotional lived experience is going to teach them or tell them, hey, you're a lot more successful when you dribble, even if you get into this stalemate war, at least you don't lose it, right? Which of course is painful to the player on an individual level because they want the ball. So playing a smaller game, right? Or I should say playing a game with smaller numbers of players in practice can be a really good opportunity for them to start to learn these technical abilities in a tactical setting, right? In addition, we can also play games with a theme where the goal is not to necessarily score on a target, but rather to keep the ball. Because any players, right, that play for, uh, you know, a little while, that play a game where, you're, you know, your goal is to keep the ball, they will learn that it's much more effective to keep the ball by passing it to a teammate, right, than it is to try to dribble the ball through all the other players. Now, the challenging thing about playing with goals is that there's such a high incentive to get towards the goal that the incentive to keep the ball diminishes in the mind of the players, right? Especially on an emotional level. I would much rather be trying to get towards that goal down there and score and celebrate than it would be to try to keep the ball as a group. 
that doesn't sound nearly as fun to the player, right? So let me give you one example, right? You could play a game where you make a small box and you put two players against another two players and you say, okay, I'm going to you know, set a timer for 30 seconds or one minute. And whichever team has the ball at the end of that 60 seconds wins. As simple as that, they might in the first few iterations continue to dribble and fight. But if you were to, for example, make a, uh, a decision to put, for example, your two best passing players together, they might solve the problem of passing the ball and then show the other players that that's the effective way to do it, right? Because when you start to lose to a team that's passing the ball, you suddenly like, okay, we got to do what they're doing so that we can win, right? Um, so that's just an idea. But there are, of course, many different games, and I would encourage you to look at the curriculum. There's some you know, 2v2 with one goal or 2v1 on one goal, which I'll maybe talk a little bit more later. That might be a good example of games you could play. Um, another thing that I kind of wanted to emphasize about this is when you discuss, right, this uh, this idea of, of keeping the ball, but in the game context, one way that you can talk about this with your players is you can define three different ways of going down the field, right? And these are the three ways I describe them. Going through, going around, and going over. Now, these are all words that young people will have an easy time understanding and conceptually can understand uh, in, in relation to the ball and the other team and the space. And that's really useful because now you can have a dialogue with your players using terminology that they feel comfortable talking about. Then what you can do is when you're playing the bigger game, right, whether that's 4v4, 5v5, 6v6, or even a smaller game where there are goals involved, you can freeze the game when you see the clumping happening and you can say, oh, freeze. And then everybody freezes. You can say, okay, look at where the ball is. Look at where we are. Should we go through the opponent, around the opponent, or over the opponent? Somebody there is going to see, look, we could go around the opponent. Opponent, Beautiful. And then you say, and how can we get around? How can we help this guy with the ball get around? Right? We don't want to get in his way because he want to let him dribble. How can we get around? Players will start to have ideas. Well, I could go over here. He could pass me the ball. Great. Where could you go? I could go over there. So when he gets it, he could pass it to me. And you can see how this opens up uh, a dialogue that they might be able to solve the problem for themselves. And you can actually have that conversation with them because you're using three words, right? Through, around, and over that are familiar and are easy to build on later as you become more advanced in the game. Finally, the best thing that you can do is be patient everybody has gone through this stage. And at the end of the day, it's not always going to be about what the coach can do to facilitate them you know, learning this insight. But it's really going to be about them having enough experiences, challenging them to push and try new things to solve this problem that's actually going to hit home and lead to them changing the way they play the game. But for a U10 boys team, if you could get them to start to think about going around an opponent instead of through over an opponent, even with a ball in the air, uh, if you start to get them to think about things like getting out of each other's way so that people can dribble, right? If you can start to, to play games where they're in smaller numbers and emphasize ideas about keeping the ball in those smaller sided games in practice, I'm sure that they're going to start on this process of learning uh, that will eventually lead to them clumping less when they have the ball. 
now for our second question. Our second question comes from a U12 girls team, so a little bit older. But of course, this is rec, so we can still assume a certain level of unfamiliarity with the game. Now, this question is fairly similar, um, but I think there's a certain element to it that I want to emphasize. So the question is, how do I teach my team to stay open and use the whole field and stay in their positions? Right. So there's three pieces. Stay open, use the whole field, stay in their positions. Right. Now, one thing is that this coach emphasized that the team is actually very good at passing the ball, but are often too bunched in the middle of the ball, uh, middle of the field to actually receive passes. And uh, the coach also emphasized uh, that they have been trying to emphasize in practice that they need to stay open to receive the ball. They need to stay close to the sidelines where there's space to play, right? And reminding the players about what their positions are. So there are a few things I want to mention. First, when it comes to staying, you know, to staying, you know, like spread out when you have the ball, a lot building, piggybacking off this, the first question I, I already, you know, took a stab at answering. Obviously, there's a lot there that you could you could bring into into this question, right? So you could focus on playing games um, where it's really a matter of keeping the ball rather than trying to progress down the field, right? Kind of compartmentalize the, the, those aspects of the game briefly in practice so that they start to recognize, well, the easiest way to keep the ball is certainly to get wide, right? Um, but going down the center of the field, right, is sometimes a difficult thing to uh, kind of, uh, how do I say, like uh, unwind because the emphasis on going directly to the goal as fast as possible is still in their mind. Going around sometimes feels like the long way and they don't want to do that. But again, you can still emphasize those ideas to them. Listen, we're trying to go through and we need to try to go around. How can we go around? And continue to use that same terminology in practice so that they start to get a sense and have this kind of thematic way of understanding what they're trying to do. The thing, though, I really want to focus on in this question, um, and hopefully you know, this doesn't omit anything that I could have done a better job with uh, that I didn't cover in the first, is this idea of staying in a position. So... The first thing I want to just kind of highlight is, again, being drawn to the ball is a good thing, right? Players wanting to get the ball, be close to the ball is a good thing. And we don't want to necessarily stifle that intuition. Uh, The second thing I want to kind of emphasize is that soccer is a very fluid game, right? And you kind of have to be careful what you wish for when it comes to asking players to stay in position. Even if you watch the highest levels of soccer, right, Uh, the professional, the EPL, right, the English Premier League, even at the highest levels of soccer, some of the most effective tactical implementations involve players changing position, right? Going from an outside defender role to an attacking wing role and switching positions with another player. Now, all of that, of course, can seem and look coordinated, right, in that professional level. But understand that at the base, soccer is a fluid game. And when we engage with it as a fluid game, we're often much more successful than when we engage with it as a static game. Now, to that end, I, I encourage you to kind of think about the, the, the players on the field less as occupying positions and more so about occupying roles. Now, what do I mean by that? What's the difference between a position and a role? Well, a position, often when we use that word, what we mean is on a whiteboard, right? 
you are the right defender, the left defender, you know, the central defender, the center forward, right? And we kind of draw them on a piece of paper there. But in the in in the game, you would know that sure, maybe the ball is coming down on the left-hand side, but if nobody else is there to get the ball, we would want the right defender to go get it just as much as anybody else on the field, right? Just because they're not on the left side on paper doesn't mean we don't want them to go get the ball, right? So what do I mean by roles? Well, roles have a lot more to do with what I might call the personality of the player, right? Some players have, and you'll see this, right? Some players' intuition, for example, is to stay farther back on the field, right? Kind of watch the game. And when the ball pops out or the other team starts a counterattack, to go run and chase it down and get it. Other players are drawn to the ball constantly. They want to run and engage in the battle for the ball, whether they have it or not. Other players like to stay forward and are always yelling, pass me the ball, pass me the ball, right? So they can get the ball and then go attack. But you're going to notice on your team that different players have different personalities. And those personalities often align with a role that could be useful anywhere on the field, right? Somebody likes to kick the ball hard and far, could be very successful in the back of the field because they could clear the ball forward to somebody up high to go score. They could also be effective at the top of the field because if they get the ball and do the same thing, that might be a shot on goal, right? Players that could dribble could be useful in the back because, you know, they might break through the lines and cause problems because there's nobody there to mark them, but they could also be effective at the top of the field because when they get the ball, they can dribble the last defender and score on goal. So what I mean to say is think about the way that your players have an affinity to perform a certain role as opposed to another. And rather than and then and then in the game, right, when it comes to game time, think about putting them sure, you can give them positions, right? Because that might make them feel more comfortable. But what you should be evaluating and thinking about on the coach is can I put on the field players that are gonna fulfill a variety of different roles so that when they work together, they're all contributing something valuable to the team, right? So, for example, when I coached my first U9 game uh, a couple a couple weekends ago, uh, I put players in positions, right, uh, on my whiteboard, but of course, as soon as the game began, everyone was running everywhere. That gave me an opportunity, though, to see who likes to do what. And in the following game, Right, the game that happened on because uh, I happened to have two games that weekend. In the next game, I made sure that I had always had one player that liked to play a more defensive role, one player that liked to challenge the ball, one player that liked to pass, one player that liked to. I like kind of tried to include a variety there, so that they could start to recognize, hey, this is what I do, and it's valuable to the team, right? In reality, what we're trying to do, right, is we're trying to develop whole like a well-rounded players. But the beginning to developing a well-rounded player is often letting the players do the things that they have a natural affinity to do. Now, when it comes to practice, you can kind of uh, address this idea of positions, right? You can kind of start to give players an opportunity to experience the importance of a role or position uh, through two different means. One, when you play a small-sided game, you could do you could put players together that have very similar affinities and you could also put together players that have very different affinities. When you put together players that have very similar affinities, what you're going to notice is that in the context of the game, 
somebody is going to have to step up and play a slightly different role. If I, for example, in my practice put two guys that are very fast and they don't like to pass, they really like to dribble, and I put them on a team, and then I put them against another team that I know is very good at defense and I, I expect will be able to win the ball and then kind of counterattack, what's going to happen is one of those attacking players is going to realize, man, we're starting to lose because nobody is going back to play defense. And that will incentivize somebody, right, to start to play that role. So sometimes grouping players together that have a similar perspective facilitates them learning the other piece that they're missing in the group. On the other hand, putting together players that have different kinds of affinities, sometimes that is helpful because they start to feel more comfortable with the role that they play in the context of the team. They can start to gain confidence. Oh, I'm the guy that does this for the group, and that guy does that, and that works well. And they don't get in each other's way because they want to play the roles that clearly fit and contribute to the team, right? So you can use it either way. Put people that are, you know, playing a similar role together so that they are forced to branch out for the sake of winning the small game they're playing in practice or put players that are different together to see if you can find some synergy between them that emotionally leaves an impact on them when they say, oh, that's what I want to do, right? That's how I want to do it. Because at the end of the day, no matter how much we tell them, no matter how much reason there might be for them to do one or another role or position on the field to play that out, Players are going to learn the things that have an emotional impact on them. And at the end of the day, we all know that trying to win, trying to succeed is an emotional experience for them that they will prioritize even above some smaller discomfort uh, as long as they're in set, as long as they're given a context in which case it, it, where doing that new role, learning that new thing is obviously the thing they need to do to win, right? Um, I think the last thing, uh, I want to mention again is that, you know, we're trying to build well-rounded players. The first thing we want to do is try to find their first dimension, right? That first thing that they're comfortable doing and let them do that, right? Try to develop that. And then over time, find opportunities to kind of push them out of their, not maybe not push, but kind of give them opportunities to try new things, but usually because it's going to help them succeed, right? Going to help them win. That's what they want to do right? So we kind of had to put them in times where maybe they're not forced to do it because we told them, they're forced to do it because the demands of the game clearly require. And for my next question, we have another question from a U12 boys team. Um, and we actually have two seemingly related questions. So uh, one question was, some of our team is better at passing and trapping than others. And I've tried some small-sided stuff games, right, to improve their ability, uh, but with only limited success. Are there any suggestions for ways of working on passing, trapping, and moving with the ball? Um, the second piece was we have a fantastic, fun team, but practices can sometimes feel like hurting cats. It can be challenging to maintain attention and focus. Full field scrimmages with big goals are the easiest way to get the whole team excited, but they aren't always the solution and don't always improve underdeveloped skills. Any suggestions? So I'm going to take these two one at a time. So the first one, right, uh, some of our team is better at trapping and passing, others aren't. How can we get at that, right? Because the small-sided games are maybe a little bit too difficult. 3v3 may still be too big. As crazy as it sounds, you might just need to step down to 2v2. And that's the first thing I want to kind of point out, right? Is you might need to go even smaller. I used to coach college kids, and my expectation is that we could, you know, facilitate certain things at the 3v3 or 4v4 level. And while that was true of some things, that was not true of all, right? Some things, even for college-aged kids, 
were better learned in tiny micro environments like 2v2 or 3v3. Um, and so you might need to step this down even further and really focus on 2v2. And if you're struggling for this, with this on, a, on, a, on some level for, for at least some players, really focusing on that 2v2 is where you want to stay until they've had some form of mastery that you, gives you confidence they could bring it to the 3v3 level. But anyways, let's talk about some alternative things, right? One when thing you could try is I have something that's kind of like a technical warm-up I do for some of my my, my teams, even my older teams. Um, and, you know, there's two things I like to do. One is passing partners, right? So when people show up, everybody wants a ball. They want to kick around, warm up. What I will do is say, get a partner, right? And pass the ball back and forth. And maybe I will start with them with some, you know, predetermined, uh, like, uh, uh, distance, right? You're going to stand here and you're going to stand 10 feet away where the cone is. And then when more players show up, I kind of put them in those, in those spaces. So now you're just passing back and forth. That's the simplest way to get them just passing the ball back and forth, right? Ideally, you would make partners based on ability, but often I make partners based on who shows up first, right? The second thing that you could do, right, or I guess I should mention, even with that, what you can do is slowly over time is you could say, hey, let everybody back up 10 steps and slowly kind of get it farther and farther away so that passing and that receiving uh, is a little more challenging, right, and you're getting a better, better, uh, more experience doing it at farther distances. The second thing I like to do is I like to play a game called horseshoes. So uh, what you do is you, you have everybody separate into groups with a partner, so everybody has a partner, and... Uh, you and your partner, let's say, get spread out about, uh, let's start with 10 or 15 yards apart. And you put down a cone, right, right next to or in front of each partner. So there's one cone here, 10 yards away, and there's another cone. You and your partner are standing, are standing across from each other. Another group of two is going to stand there right next to you, right? So you are going to be next to your opponent, and your teammate is going to be 10 yards away next to the other cone against their opponent. Now, the way the game works is every pair has a ball. And the way that you do it is you pass the ball to your partner and your partner receives the ball with one touch. But their job is to try to get that, re that received ball as close to the cone as possible, right? So you can imagine how this game works, right? I pass the ball to you. You touch it once, and you try to touch it in a way that will stay right next to the cone. The other part, the other pair does the same thing. Whichever ball is closer, right, is the one that wins. Now, some, of course, some little things to include there. Make sure that they can only use one touch when they receive the ball, right? Uh, and make sure that the players are generally passing the ball from the same distance, right? Now, that's a kind of a fun game some people enjoy. The way I've used it the most is for working on balls in the air, right? So I say, okay, everybody's 10 yards apart, nice little chip the ball, and the guy has to make the one touch in the air. That's a little more challenging, though, and I would maybe just have you try it on the, on the ground to begin with, especially if receiving and passing is a difficult thing for your, for your team, so you can just try that to begin with, right? So that's a fun game you could try, passing partners as well, but that will give you some just technical work, right, that has no, that has no opponent getting in your way, that could be a building block to the, you know, maybe smaller side of games that you've been kind of maybe having on some challenges making successful. Now, when it does come to the games that you, small side of games, one of the games that I would, that you could play uh, is you could play 
2v2 on a single goal, right? So I've explained this in the curriculum, but you're going to set two cones apart. That makes a single goal. You could score from either side of the goal. And what you're going to do is you're going to have two teams of two. Uh, they're going to have one ball, and they're going to be trying to score on that goal, and they could score endlessly from either side of the goal. The nice thing about this is that when you play this game, given that there's only one goal, as soon as a player receives the ball and is trying to attack, the other two are going to immediately get in their way. And the strategy becomes, can we get around those two players to take a shot on the goal, right, before they can shift over and stop the shot? That involves a lot of passing, right? And the thing is, it's very, very, there's a lot of repetitions. You lose the ball and win the ball back constantly because if you lose the ball, you immediately get in front of the goal to stop the other team from attacking. You can win it back and do the same thing. Now, if 2v2 is a little difficult, another way you could do this, especially with a U12 boys team where I think they would be old enough to be able to understand and play this game, is to play with three players at a cone. How does that work, right? Two players start on the outside and one player starts on what we'll call the middle, defending the goal. But when the player in the middle wins the ball from one of the two players on the outside, they immediately switch places. And the player they won the ball from is now, quote unquote, in the middle. Now, the nice thing about this is that the two players on the outside are going to have even more success because they're going to be going against one player now instead of two. It's going to be a lot easier to pass that ball and find that angle to score, right? But nobody has to stay in the middle for very long, right? As long as they're tenaciously trying to win the ball. Uh, I think this is a really fun one. I play this even with my oldest, more advanced kids because it can get very intense, even for your more skilled players, but obviously can be a good level for your maybe less developed players. And obviously you may want to group your players such that you have the strongest players playing together on one cone or one goal and you have your weaker players kind of playing together in another group on another one, right? So that's something you could definitely try. For your second question about herding cats, right? How can I get my players to, you know, uh, play and, and do things, but in an orderly way, right? I had uh, a younger girls team where that was a big challenge for us, right? It felt like every time I wanted to bring them in to talk about the next activity or from the water break or to talk about what we had just done, there was a lot of side conversations, a lot of interruptions, and it wasn't that they were, you know, malicious in any way. It wasn't that they were trying to, but they were distracted and they were excited and it was difficult for us to kind of make a smooth, you know, successful practice happen. I think the bottom line when it comes to managing groups like this is that you need to use circle time, which I've described in the curriculum, but I'll describe again here, in a way that I wouldn't call it firm, but that is patient. So what do I mean by that? When you bring your players in to speak and you say, hey, all right, ready, we're going to play a new game, and they come and start talking and do whatever, you wait. Once you start to get a little bit more, some of the people in the group realize you're being quiet, you can kind of try again. Hey, you guys ready to play? You guys ready to talk? And if they continue to talk, you wait. Because at the end of the day, what the kids want is they want structure so that they can play an intense game with the ball. But you are the one who defines that game. You are going to be the one that puts that structure in motion. And so while they will be struggling right, to be quiet, 
they are losing time that could be spent playing a structured game. And what you can emphasize to them is, listen, we have some, maybe some talent, or we are very, you know, fun and exciting team. But the thing that we need to work on as a group is transitions, right? Name the challenge, right, for them. Say, we need to work on transitions. And the way that we're going to do that is when we come together as a group, we need to see how quickly we can pay attention so that I can structure the next game and we can play. The time that we spend on transition, waiting for people to be quiet, is time that we're going to lose playing the game. And you need, in some sense, to be kind of stern about this. And I mean, not stern is not the right word. I'm trying to find the right word, but it's we need to be we need to be serious about it, right? We can't uh, cut corners here. You know, can't say, oh, "All right, fine, I'll, I'll let it go this time." No, make transition a purposeful part of your improvement every practice. Oh, our transitions are doing much better today. Good job, guys. Or, hey, remember, transition, we need to make this transition. And don't move into the next thing until the cats are herded, right? Another thing I might recommend is bring a whistle. You can even get one. It's a button-pushing whistle, so you don't have to blow it, especially now you know, with masking and all of that. It can be difficult to have a more manual whistle. Get a whistle. And the reason why I say that is because whistle is often a lot easier uh, it's a lot more, how do I say, it's a lot more distinct catalyst for starting and stopping play, right? When you blow the whistle, everybody hears it, and you can start to get a pattern recognition. Oh, when he blows the whistle, right, and he says, come and bring it in, we all come in, and that's the beginning of our transition. When we have to use our voice, and it's always a matter of yelling loud enough that everybody can hear us, uh, it's about, you know, maybe we have to say it a few times in case people didn't hear us, but a whistle, you can be certain. Everybody heard you, everybody knows what's coming next. Uh, and so a whistle can be a good thing. So between those two things, right? Have a whistle to help them understand, oh, we are about to go into a transition. Bring them into a circle and wait until they are willing to calm down, to be quiet before you organize the next activity, right? Now, of course, if you have more serious problems with discipline, people causing trouble, breaking rules, that's a different story. But if this is just a matter of people trying to kind of keep their excitement you know, and be patient enough to get through 30 seconds of explanation so you can play the next game, then this is probably a way that you could start to address that. Finally, our last question for this episode is a question from a U10 boys team. And they want to know, do you have any tips for encouraging players or other teams to not run up the score? Right? So, you know, I understand first and foremost that when we go to the game on the weekend, right, and we lose 10-0, 11-0, right? Obviously, that can that can feel like a, a very frustrating or even to some players kind of devastating experience. But honestly, this is something where soccer can be a great development tool for principles that go far beyond the game. And I think the principle that we have to try to engage our players about is the idea that outcome is not equal to self-worth. Just because you lose a game, regardless of how many goals, does not mean that you are less worthy as a person, as a player, right? And that is something that we really need to encourage for our players, right? Whether we're winning or losing. Just because we won by a lot of goals does not mean that we are masters of soccer and there is nothing to learn. 
And just because we lost by a mountain of goals doesn't mean that we're bad soccer players. We should hang it all up and, we're, and that we're, you know, we, we somehow failed in some way that we cannot change. It's important for players to recognize through the game of soccer that what our goal is is to improve, to get better. Right, And a lot of times in the beginning of seasons with teams where I might not have a good outcome, I remind them that this is a starting point. right? That this is probably the worst performance we'll have all season. right? Because it's our first. And I know, you know, we know that our goal this season is to improve, to get better. right? And I think that that is the first crucial thing that we need to acknowledge is, a, is an important aspect of our role as a coach to help them understand that outcomes are not equivalent to self-worth, right? Now, when it comes to, okay, sure, I'm going to work on that. But what can I do with this team that's, you know, just crushing my team and making it very, very difficult for them to play the game? Well, in the reality... You know, if in a rec program that in an idealized rec program, we would try to balance the teams in terms of talent and ability, right? In some way, right? We wouldn't do it by age group. We do it by skill level. But unfortunately, there are a few things that get in the way. One, age is the easiest proxy and we don't have the resources to evaluate people based on their level of play. And second, we often like facilitate, right? Players playing with their friends, and often cohorts of friends are going to be either more or less skilled at the sport, right? You're going to have a group of friends that all want to play together because they know they're all really good at soccer. And so you're going to get these very kind of big discrepancies in terms of, well, here's a team of players that has never played the game before playing against another team that's played rec for four years in a row. They all know each other and they've got like two or three ringers on the team. And the reality is, right, there's not a whole lot that you could do to kind of stop, you know, to get the outcome to go the other way, right? And I think we just got to acknowledge that right up front. Now, the reason why I haven't gotten to this point of how do we stop teams from running up the score is because personally, I don't think that that is the right way to think about what we should be doing for our players. Discouraging players from scoring is not in the spirit of soccer. Soccer is about scoring goals as much as you can and stopping the other team from scoring as much as you can. If we start to put, create, facilitate an environment where players are letting the other team score because it's kind or scoring less goals because they want to be nice, they're no longer playing the game of soccer. They're just not because that's not how the game of soccer works. That said, we can still find ways to make the game a better use of everybody's time. How can we do that? Well, for the team that is dominating, right? The team that's winning, you know, 8, 9, 10, 0. As a coach, you need to challenge them. If they're winning that heftily, it's very likely that this game is not a challenging experience for them. And thus, it's not going to be a good learning experience. It's not balanced right. And so what can we do to make it more challenging? Well, number one, you should use this as an opportunity to play some of your weaker players. Play your underdeveloped players, maybe more so than you usually would. Now, granted, everybody should be playing 50% of the game. But if you start to score a lot of goals, this is the opportunity to put your less advanced players because you might find a later game in the season that's very, very intense and competitive, they might be the ones that play just 50%, right? 
but the other players in your team are going to play a little bit more because they make sense given the challenge of the game. Do not miss this opportunity to let your weaker players play, right? Because that is going to be good and exciting and probably more challenging for them than it is going to be for the players that are very, very successful. You need to be strong enough to say, nope, I know you're having a good time slaughtering this other team, but you need to take a break while I give opportunities to some of our less developed players to play the game because that is what Rec is all about, right? We're trying to make an equitable experience as best we can. The second thing is that you can start to create a bigger challenge by creating a game within the game. So you can say, okay, this is how we want to do it. I want us to keep scoring goals, but now, and this is one of my favorite challenges to give a team, I am going to only count goals that are scored with a one-touch shot. Right? So what does that mean? It means if I get the ball and I have to take more than one touch, I should be looking for somebody else to take the shot. I'm only going to count goals that happen from a one-touch shot. The beauty of this is that you are not just telling them, hey, don't score goals. What you're doing is you're incentivizing them to score a certain kind of goals. Right? So maybe another way, you could say, oh, shoot from the outside. I want to see how many goals we can score from outside of the box. That's going to be our goal in the second half. Start to challenge them in ways that create, like I said, a game within the game. And if they start to work on things like shooting from outside, or scoring with a one-touch shot, which really is about facilitating a good pass so that somebody could take a shot right away, they're going to continue to develop. They're going to be using this op- as game as an opportunity to learn something new, right? To build on their skill set, right? Uh, without necessarily contradicting the nature or spirit of the game, right? So there are many other ways you could do that, but try to find ways to incentivize more difficult scoring opportunities because that will help them later down the road when they meet an opponent that maybe isn't so easy for them to dominate, right? So try to find a way to make it challenging for them. I would ne- I would never tell somebody to tell their players to stop scoring goals. I-, I don't think that that's necessary because we shouldn't be seeing outcomes as inherently an uh, indicator of our self-worth. Um, we should be seeing development as the as the as the kind of principal thing that we're trying to do, and we should be evaluating ourselves not based on how we did today, but how much better we have done than last time, right? Now, for the team that is struggling in the situation, the team that's getting scored on, the important thing as a coach is to stay positive, right? Stay positive with your team, right? Maybe segment the game, right? Not, maybe make the game, make a game within a game, right? So what is, how do I do that with my teams that are usually lo- losing very badly? Well, I tell them, okay, we lost the first half, but let's see if we can win the second half, right? Give them a sense of rebirth in the second half, right? Hey, forget the first half score. We don't care. Yeah, we lost. That's fine. Now the second half, can we win the second half? Second, if you're getting beat very badly, You need to focus on defense, right? You say, okay, guys, this is what we need to do. We need to stop them from scoring. How can we stop them from scoring? And let them have ideas they can try out. Say, this is our opportunity to try out different things that will work on defense. How can we do that? And the funny thing is that this is a great example of where getting clumped up a little bit every now and then is going to be valuable. Well, maybe, you know, when he goes to pressure the ball, we have to go as a group. We can't go by ourselves because we're getting beat 1v1. Or, you know what? 
Maybe let's sit closer to our goal and pack it in there so they can't break through. And then when we get the ball, then we try to go attack the other side, right? Try to give them the opportunity to come up with ideas about how to stop them. Try to segment the game in some way that gives them small chunks to try to feel successful rather than the larger arc of the score for the whole game, right? Now, I know this sounds, I'm just, you know, I'm out here giving you these things. Oh, you're not there. It's harder. You don't know the nature of what's going on. You're right. I don't. And maybe if I was in those situations myself, I could give a little bit more pointed advice. But I want to be clear that what we can do in these situations as a coach is try to give our player, our teams that are struggling positivity and encouragement and a redirection of their perspective so that they continue to work on something and feel successful about accomplishing that thing as opposed to the score. And for our play teams that are being, uh, that are dominating and being, a, you know, and being very, you know, v- you know, having a dominating performance and are scoring a lot of goals, give out time to the players that maybe don't get to play as much in the tight games, right? Because this is a time uh, for them to get the, to get honestly the best experience, right? Because it's a, it may be a game that will be more in their wheelhouse. And secondarily, try to challenge your players. Try to incentivize them to score in unique ways, new ways that will be useful to them down the road. Right, um, and I think that if we try to do that, even if there are games that are real blowouts, we can walk away with it with some dignity, with respect, and we can still have learned something despite the score being drastically in favor of one team or another. So I just want to say, you know, thank you to the play, to the coaches that submitted questions this week. There were a few questions I didn't quite get to, uh, and I will try to save those for next week. Again, I want to remind you that, you know, I, I don't know the full context of everything that's happening. And this is my, you know, this is my opinion, my insight, my perspective on it. And I encourage you to give me more feedback, more questions. If you disagree, I want to hear from you just as much as I want to hear from the folks who agree. Um, and I hope that this has been useful. Uh, please uh, submit questions for next week if you can. And thank you all for the wonderful work that you're doing. Remember that no matter what happens in the games on the weekend, no matter how challenging certain moments might be for certain players, you are giving them the opportunities to learn. And if we can stay positive, if we can continue to encourage them and and ask them for and ask them to engage with the with the challenges that they face, ask them to find the answers, that is the real way that they will learn, right? It's not our job as a coach to know all the answers to every problem they face and provide them with those answers. Our job is to facilitate an environment where they experience challenge and then provide an environment where they can reflect on that and try things and find success that they can take ownership on their own and carry with them not only into next week's practices but into the environments outside of the game.